Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Jeremy. This is Slayhouse Publishing presents Lit Bits. And with me, as always, is Trevor and Curtis. Say hello, guys. Hello. Hello, guys. Thank you. Did I do it right? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Uh, today we're joined by Michael Kellemeyer as a co-host. He's the uh, publisher, owner, editor, illustrator. You wear, like I said in the last episode, you wear a lot of hats. Yeah, of I do. Old Style Tales uh, Press. And if you want to learn more about that, listen to our previous episode with Michael, uh, where we really talk about that. He, he has some wonderful additions out there, and we really want you all to experience them. Today, I think... Um, in trying to figure out how I want to package this episode, I think what I want to call it is like an introduction to Victorian ghost stories. And, and, and because we're not really going to, we're going to get pretty deep on a couple of stories, but this is just really the tip of the iceberg, I feel like. Um, mm-hmm. And there is such a, a, a world, just a, a, a huge wealth of information out there for uh, Victorian literature and for Victorian horror and ghost stories that what we're going to talk about today is just really just a taste for these these stories so if you like what you hear when we talk about these stories today then by by all means check them out check out old uh, old style tales uh, com and see all of the you've got like 35 you said um, mm-hmm. titles yeah 35 all centered around this idea of like the the weird fiction and and ghost stories and stuff so and i've some i mean some really good authors some just, just great authors, authors that i think like you can enjoy at any time in your life mm-hmm. we know? did a uh, we did a hot take on our patreon about how to get into horror literature and i think one of the ideas was um eventually getting into or like for those who are like well read you know, for the people who are like English majors who maybe not have experienced a whole lot of horror literature, that the classics are a way to go. And I think the the library that you've kind of already built into your mm. your your catalog of, of books, um, I think is a great way to get introduced. Well, and I think what what works about that catalog for me is is that um, you know again there there are some really well known authors represented yep. in here, mm-hmm. um, but but perhaps sometimes in lesser known. Um, spaces, you know, like Charles Dickens, I think, was master of the the ghost story for a long time. Mm-hmm. He was like the de facto, you know, ghost story yes. guy. Um, and yet, when we read his stuff uh, today, we're not reading his ghost fiction, which I think is kind of a shame because I think his ghost fiction mm-hmm. is way more, for me, way more interesting. Well, and the only ghost fiction of his that we do read or that we are aware of is A Christmas Carol. And, and nobody so, remembers right. that that's a ghost story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that yeah. was, yeah. oh, we talked about that on our Christmas yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah. The creepiness of the, the guy undoing his, his, uh, the well, handkerchief that held his, his bandage, yeah, yeah, and yeah. his jaw just kind of drops yeah. open. It's like it's very, very gruesome, yeah. yeah. But I also like that um, you, your stuff, uh, actually also services like a lot of different, more obscure authors, or at least authors that would mm-hmm. be more obscure by today's standard, right? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like the two that we're looking at today kind of stretch the, that that kind of. Mm-hmm. spectrum right yeah. so we have they do have, they definitely do so one author um we'll talk about uh, i should introduce them in the order that we're going to talk about them like i always tell my <laughs> students you know make your thesis mm-hmm. statements work um <laughs> so the first author that we're going to talk about might be i think i feel like a little less less well known edith nesbitt i mean mm-hmm. in today's age in today's certainly. age 
Correct. then the second yeah. author we're going to look at, M.R. James, um, I feel like has uh, a little bit more. He's much more well known. Much more well known, mm-hmm. even though to the to the layperson out there, yeah. they wouldn't know about either of them. I think, but, yeah, probably. I, I think to an American mm-hmm. audience anyway. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. I, I feel like British audiences are still pretty well aware of M.R. James. His stuff, oh, yes. <laughs> his stuff is being is still being adapted. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know, within the last thirty years, anyway, um, into mm-hmm. you know short story, or or short and film anthology stuff, you know that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Edith Nesbitt, not so much, yeah. but I think that she is a, a bit more obscure for the twenty first century mm-hmm. reader. By the way, I'm the layman in the room, so <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm always the uh, sample. The, uh, if you're wondering who knows Audience what, sample, yeah, yeah, just ask me. I mean, have, have, so Curtis, have you heard of? Edith Nesbitt or M.R. James? No. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I want then, I, I really hope to get Curtis's feedback on as we talk about these stories, because um, they're, man, that illustration you provide with the Edith Nesbitt story. Okay, let me get into it, because we got to, like, people are going to be like, well, what's the freaking story? So we got to talk about it. Mm. So, um, so Edith Nesbitt's The Mystery of the Semi-Detached is the first story we're going to tackle. Right. It's in your um, the mm-hmm. best Victorian ghost stories, annotated and illustrated edition. Yeah. I'll put that um, on our website as like one of our sources so people yeah. can find it. Um, Should we turn it over to the expert for let's, a, a summary? Yeah, let's turn it over to the expert for the summary. <laughs> That's <Okay>. you. So, <laughs> so essentially, um, as I'm pulling this up, what the story, um, how it starts is we've got uh, a young gentleman who is... Um, loitering around the um he's he's loitering around the outside of his girlfriend's apartment um and they've recently become um supposedly engaged um you know they, they've decided that they're going to get married but her family is very against it she doesn't or they don't like the idea of her marrying this guy and there's a suggestion that um that he might not be a, a high quality person for her to be with and mm-hmm. that there's something about the relationship that's a little unsettling to them you know she has a, a widowed mother and a wealthy uncle who are um you know they, they're kind of trying to coach her through being a, a marriageable young woman during the late victorian period and so he's hanging outside of her apartment which is a, a semi-detached and the word that we would use in the united states is a duplex mm-hmm. you know so yeah. it, it has a shared wall with another um apartment and it's it's really creepy the way it begins it has this very atmospheric beginning where it's twilight it's dusk Mm -hmm. they have these um the the widowed mother and the uncle have agreed these guys can get together um you know once a week they can see each other once a week and um they've decided we're going to meet outside of those parameters so we're going to have a clandestine meeting um, where we get together and he's again loitering outside of her apartment it's getting darker you know it has this beautiful language where they say you know the uh the cyclists were riding by like gray mm-hmm. ghosts you know he a yeah. policeman passes him and the policeman's kind of terse and there's just this sense that there's something weird brooding um around this neighborhood um which is in a very posh part of london um he looks up and he realizes for the first time Oh my gosh, the the door to her apartment is wide open, but there's no lights on inside. And so he's kind of um, concerned and decides to investigate like what's going on because he's expected her to come out and meet him. 
he goes inside the whole apartment is dark um and and it should be noted in this time period this is where she lives with her mom so this isn't her Mm -hmm. apartment this is their shared apartment you know he explores the rooms everything's dark everything is is gloomy and there's a sense of tension that's just dripping over the whole story um and then he decides to go up the stairs and the thing that always stands out to me uh, and this is one of those things about victorian literatures Mm -hmm. um that, that can be confusing is it's pretty significant that he number one knows to go up the stairs and then number yep. two knows where her bedroom is right because yep. that's the the first thing he does is he he goes up to her bedroom and he's also very comfortable opening that door and walking into that bedroom right um which these are things that we would not pick up on in a modern story or think right. were significant he goes up the stairs everything's cast in gloom it's very dark um and he opens the door and as he has been exploring these different rooms trying to figure out why is the door open where is everybody he's been striking matches so he strikes a match and holds it up and he sees you know kind of the the detritus of her life Mm -hmm. Uh, there's ribbons and gloves and there's stuff kind of you know it looks like it's been um you know that she's dressed or undressed recently and there's stuff kind of flung around and he looks up at the bed and he sees her which it's this is an important plot piece it is her he sees his sweetheart she says in a loose white gown which you know we're going to take that to mean negligee she's wearing negligee in the bed with her throat cut ear to ear and there's blood everywhere Mm -hmm. um he absolutely freaks out books it out of there drops the match runs down the stairs (laughs) runs back into the policeman who had earlier kind of looked at him suspiciously um and he's he's actually so gobsmacked and so stunned and, and shocked that the the policeman um lo- kind of drags him to to not prison but drags him to jail to yeah. sit well, in a drunk tank he's drunk. To figure out what <laughs> the situation is yeah so the next morning um he expects like they let him out and he runs back to the apartment and he expects there to be a crowd kind of like ogling at this this murder and nothing's wrong his his sweetheart is there um the mom is there and he can't really tell her he doesn't want to tell her exactly what happened but he's like well the door was open i went inside and you know i I saw i can't say what it was but there was something in the bed that was just too much for me to handle and so um the one thing they kind of talk about the details and, and he's like well the one thing that um did stand out to me was you know you had a a date book on mm-hmm. on your um on your uh wardrobe and it was open to october 21st um and this is in may and he's like so that was kind of weird and she's like no my date book is open to you know the current date so i don't know what you're talking about but he's so shocked by this vision you know just the sight <laughs> of her with her throat cut in bed in a very um violative way in a way that's like very sexually charged um and he doesn't rest until number one she's moved out and then Nesbitt says, and incidentally, he also married her. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of, right, kind of funny. Right, yeah. um, like, and in the process, he he also uh, ended up marrying her. Yeah. They move out to the suburbs away from this this posh neighborhood, um, which is implied to have lots of like secrecy and lots of like, you know, there's just stuff. This is a fashionable part of London, but there's a lot of stuff that that goes on behind closed doors. And he, you know, gets her out to the suburbs mother-in-law moves in with them and he keeps checking in on this apartment like hey has anyone rented the semi-detached 
Well, um, later in the summer, he finds out that a, an investment baker, I think it's a stockbroker, yeah. the uh, stockbroker mm-hmm. has taken the place. And he tries to convince this guy, you know, without telling him exactly why, you need to leave. Like, you do not live in this apartment. It's not a good place to be. There's something wrong about this place. It's always a convincing um, argument, right? When when yeah. you're like, I can't tell you why. I can't tell you like, why. Dude, Which is let me tell you the same thing he did with his uh, his quote unquote fiance, where right. you yeah. know he never really told her what he saw, right? But somehow he he convinced her to to get out. Well, you know, and then Nesbitt closes with this paragraph at the very, very end where she says, the funny thing was that on the morning of October 22nd, you know, when his wife came down um, to see him in the morning, he was, you know, she found him um, with his head in his hands and a newspaper at his elbow. And, um, and she's like, what's wrong? And he just, you know, points to the newspaper, you know, very nervously. And then in the newspaper is a description of a murder that took place at that address where the daughter of the stockbroker was found with her throat cut ear to ear in her bedroom. Yeah. And that's it. And that's, that's the end of the story. And so, I mean, the name, the mystery of the semi-detached, it's a really good name because it is mm-hmm. a mystery, you know, like she never yeah. resolves it. She never says who did it or why. And the thing is, that's not the point. You know, the point right. is not to, uh, to look at like, okay, who was the murderer? It's not a thriller so much as it is, kind of a philosophical tone poem about mm. just you know the the lack of support that a person can have in life when your gut is telling you something but you know fate has decided that this is something that can't be prevented it's going mm. to happen right yep I I think that's an interesting allegorical point because when I read these stories, right, one of the things that I I really try to figure out is like, what what's the message here, right? Like what yeah. what seems to be the the kind of human, not necessarily like human lesson, right? But but in yeah, a way, like right. what is, what is the human lesson? What, like what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I like this story because it's it's weird and it's trippy. It reminds me of another story. I, I told Jeremy um, after I read it, it, it it really reminds me of another story that um, was written, I think, in the 1950s by Julio Cortázar. He's a, an, a writer from Argentina. Um, he wrote this short story called The Continuity of Parks. And, and the, the conceit behind The Continuity of Parks is there's this dude um, who lives a, a pretty simple life and, and he just wants to get back to his, his apartment so he can read his book. And mm-hmm. he's, he the book is like a murder mystery book. And he's like at this point where the two lovers are, are discussing who their next murder is going to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he sits in his, his armchair um, with his back to the door and he reads the book. And then all of a sudden, um, as he's he's reading the narrative of the book, it's describing the two lovers who are coming up for their next victim. Um, and they charge into this room where Mr. Parks is reading his book and they, mm. they slip in and murder Mr. Parks. Right. Huh. Yeah. Um, so it's like this really weird kind of meta fictional narrative. Um, and, and I don't know why the, there was a resonance in my brain between that and this story, which is also really short and, and seems to deal with, mm-hmm. you know, somebody kind of foretelling the future. Right. And, and yeah. not, not quite being able to know what that means or do anything <laughs> about it. Right. So I think in, in some ways, um, 
there's there's a lot of interplay with agency in this story yes right yes um, mm-hmm. And I think so in in some of your annotations, you know, you note like this sexually charged um, subtext here. Right. Yeah. Like for right. one, we know that these people are 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 sleeping together. I mean, that's yes, the whole absolutely. point. If, if this were a John Hughes film. Right. He'd be like waiting outside the lattice, you know, to like climb <laughs> into the girl's room. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, so there's that dimension, but I think too, you know, about to your to your point about like the actual violence itself that we see, where her her throat is slit ear to ear, um, and she's in her her dressing gown or she's in her mm-hmm. you know her nightgown or whatever. Um, yeah, I think that th- there is a vulnerability there that is sex like sexual in subtext. Right. Well, and looking yes. at the looking at the date of the story, I mean, it would not have been lost to Nesbitt's readers the comparison to the Ripper murders that had just happened. Yep. I was also going to ask that's that. Very when, true. When was this? Uh, uh, 18, 1893. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, eighteen ninety three. Yeah, it was just a few and, and years when after. When did the the Ripper murders occur? Eighteen eighty eight, I think. Is that right? I think so. We talked 1880s, about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we talked about it in our Dracula series. I mean, I I think you're. <laughs> I, I, the only reason is I'm that I'm asking is because I frequently, you know, kind of like miss things by like a year or two. Yeah, me or something too. like that. Yeah. Um, but, but it my, would have still I been mean, on their thoughts, conscience. I my think my thoughts were the same way because you know I think that the Ripper murders were like sensational, right? And and when mm-hmm. you read anything, I think I mean from, we still talk about them to this day. So right? it's <laughs> well, and when you read anything, I think from from the 19th the late 19th century you know the turn of the century where we have a woman murdered with you know like horrific violence i mean in this case her her throat is cut ear to ear with those sexual overtones which the with those sexual overtones right it's it's really hard to get away from like oh okay so this is kind of like the ripper murder thing yeah yeah and and it's really similar the way she's found definitely harkens to like mary jane kelly the uh yeah. the final victim who's found in her bed whereas like right. the yeah. the rest of them were all found you know in alleys and on the streets right. but mary jane kelly you know kind of the most famous ripper victim just because of the ferocity right, right. Of how she was killed um was found in her bed just like that by a guy with a yeah. a bullseye lantern you know a, a policeman right. right which i think is um i mean the just the style of the murder is super intimate too i mean like the the yes the ear to ear that's not something that's easy to do you got to be real close to that person the fact that it happened in her bedroom while she's in her bed is also extraordinarily intimate well and you mentioned too michael you talk about how um how the victorian audience would wouldn't have been lost that the the boyfriend knows where her bedroom is Mm -hmm. to know that the killer would also know where her room is it's just that much more that amps the level of terror up i think yes yeah and then there's all this like um all this dualism of you know this unknown killer whoever he was and whatever his situation was versus the boyfriend you know and and (laughs) it's just and that's kind of one of the big points of the story is you know that he um he kind of sees himself and what he's doing to her and Mm. what happens to this vision of her Mm. um and so, yeah, there's a lot of dualism in, in his role and what's it what it is doing to her um, in a different in a different sense. 
That's an, you know, I hadn't even thought of that implication, you know, the, the, the dual role between this Mm -hmm. guy who's, you know, uh, having improper relations, we can say, (laughs) um, you know, with this girl and, and then, you know, there's also this murderer who's, Mm -hmm. you know, showing up in the same space. But the horror writer in me loves the idea that it's something the killer may not, I mean, this could be a prophetic vision where this was going to happen. But I love yeah. the idea that it's something in the house, a malicious spirit that yeah. is just waiting for that whoever's going to occupy it to mm-hmm. to kind of do this. And, yeah, it's, see, it's I, a trap. Yeah, yeah. I didn't pick up on on that subtext uh, or that. But see, that's you know, where my that, that I, that's just where my mind goes when yeah. I read stuff like this. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, something you know. I because I'm into the supernatural yeah. horror, so it's. Oh, okay. sure, uh, for sure, yeah. That, and, and this is very supernatural, right? Yeah. Like, like at least the prophetic vision is. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you don't have prophetic v- visions of your your girlfriend being dead, you know, like four months from now, five months from now, or whatever. <laughs> you know, like yeah, that, that's not a normal thing that people do. Well, I didn't tell you about no. my dream last night, though, did I? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry's like, that's not normal. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> You don't say. I, so, so you're telling me I'm dreaming weird then. <laughs> but Lay off back, the melatonin, Jeremy. <laughs> coming back to this this theme of agency, right? I, I think that um, what works about this story for me is kind of the duality of, of that agency or the loss of agency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that for a lot of, of men anyway, right, at this point in time, um, there's there's not a same or, or a similar fear of a loss of agency because it, it, right. it feels like, you know, men, especially in Victorian England, right. Hold a lot of power um, mm-hmm. and, and hold a lot of power to act. Right. Whereas yes. I think these yes. extraordinarily violent murders against women, um, which have sexual connotations as well, you know, it, like what's so terrifying about that is is that women do not have agency, right, mm-hmm. to, to change these things, and so yeah. his discovery in in learning that his his action cannot stop something from happening, yeah. right? Maybe he saves his girlfriend, then his wife, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but this violence still happens, right? Regardless. Yeah of of his his activity i th- i think there's a real mm-hmm. horror there right yeah. there's a real mm-hmm. kind of turning the agency against the man um yeah. and making him feel powerless and that mm-hmm. therein lies kind of the the human question right the the human problem yeah. is this concept of of you know where is our agency how do we mm-hmm. control our agency and what do we do in a world that seems completely out of our control yeah and obviously, I think if you are a fan of Victorian ghost stories, you're going to think of um, Charles Dickens' The Signalman, which mm. is a story about, you know, it's a, a railroad worker who has these visions that yes. um, preface a tragedy or a disaster, and he's never able to stop them. They, they just happen. And so it's like, why am I hearing about this if I can't stop it? Yes. And to your point, like, yes. Um, I, and I almost think it's a little, it's almost a turn of the screw um, to use a, another reference um, yeah. for this guy to be able to save his girlfriend, but not save the next person. Right. And he is not sitting there, you know, like you could have this story and I, I think it's so much more human and powerful that he's devastated at mm. the end of the story. And I think this is one of those things 
um, which like in the, I think the last episode we touched on this, but female writers in the Victorian ghost mm. story genre are just so good and oh, they have such yes. a different perspective because I do think that a male writer, he'd still be tore up, but he'd be like, oh, we dodged one. Yes. Yeah. But there's a, there's a pathos to the ending because he's almost just as devastated as if it was his girlfriend because he's yeah. like, I couldn't stop it, you and, know? And, and, and yeah, he's super, um, his experience through this whole thing is very, um, you know, to, to, to kind of point out the gender elements here, it's very emasculating. Oh, you know, yeah. he, he's completely, he loses control of himself, you know, which in the Victorian um, parlance, we would say he was unmanned, you know, mm -hmm. he, he's unmanned by this experience. He's, you know, the policeman thinks he's drunk. He gets thrown <laughs> in the drunk yeah. tank, you know, everyone's just like, what's your problem? Like you're, you're losing your cool, man, get with it. Um, you know, and so this whole experience, what it has done is it's almost like it's given him a taste of what it's like to be a woman right. in this time period because he feels that sense of, like, lack of control. And what it causes him to do is treat his girlfriend with more humanity and respect. Right. And, like, right. of course today, and this is where the context is so important, um, today, like, what's the big deal, you know, with, like, them getting married? Like, who cares? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of protection and power that is in that time period that is engendered onto a woman if she, if the person who is having sex with her is also respecting her enough to say, I'm going to provide legal protection to you mm. and financial protection. And so obviously today, you know, that's outdated, but that doesn't mean that when that story was written, that there wasn't more substance to getting married than just like, you know, not being a prude or being prudish, yeah. you know, it's more than just being prudish. What he's saying is I'm not like also doing this with 16 other people around town. And if you find yourself <laughs> in a family way, you're out of luck. Right. You know, what he's saying is I'm committing to you. I will protect you. I will, you know, enfranchise you, you know? Um, yeah. and, and so he ceases treating her like this thing to like treat like a toy and, and feels the value of her life and the value of, you know, it, it's so interesting. He sees the value mm -hmm. of this stranger's life, the, the girl who mm -hmm. ends up getting murdered. He's devastated by it. Yeah. And it, it's it's just so interesting. Like, you know, we're, we're into this discussion, and we really haven't talked too much about, like, well, who do we think did it? It doesn't matter. That's not the <laughs> That's point. Not, yeah, that isn't the point at all. I think, to your point, there's an uncharacteristic amount of pathos in this story. Yes. Because I've read... I, you know, I've read hundreds of stories like this one, um, but but what stands out is like he this this main character truly is devastated at the end of yeah. this story, which is something that mm -hmm. we do not see in other places. And I think you're right. If this were a male writer from this period mm -hmm. in time, I think he would have concluded the story with like a who we we dodged a bullet yeah, see what happened bullet. right and, and there, yeah, there would be right. the same level of grief right yeah yeah so with regards to that level of grief again i i feel like this opens up again a, a deeper allegorical reading too where where mm -hmm. it gives us kind of a, a more universal experience do you feel like there's um a statement in this story being made too mm -hmm. about about like like society in london at the turn of the century this the, i keep coming back to like what what's so 
important about so many of these writers is like we're living they were living in this age of rapid industrialization or mm -hmm. industrialization rapid mm -hmm. social change you know the, a, a, a feeling at times that the world is changing faster than yeah. you can keep up with right mm -hmm. yeah sounds familiar <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah right um, I mean, I, I think that this is one of the reasons why modernist literature um, is so mm -hmm. interesting because I think it was preoccupied with the same ideas. But I don't yeah. want to forget Victorian literature in this conversation either mm -hmm. because I think that they share many of the same anxieties. And perhaps yeah. through an exposure to these, these anxieties, you know, we, we can better understand or, or put our finger on exactly what it is that gives us so much discomfiture as mm -hmm. we go about our day-to-day -day lives, right? This yeah. guy knew what was going to happen, but was powerless to stop it, right? Mm -hmm. What happens to the many of us in our situations where, you know, we can see, for example, like an economic crash coming, right? We can see yeah. the difficulty down the road that is just waiting for us mm -hmm. and, and does it matter if if for example we know a, a housing crash is coming um mm -hmm. but we end up at you know seated in a house like do we not yeah. feel the same sense of anxiety for the people who mm -hmm. don't have that security who don't have that ability to kind of insulate mm -hmm. themselves from a crash that may be coming or, yeah. or from whatever it is right well, it's interesting to me. I mean, it's um, so, Michael, I know you said last uh, the, we talked about like trending ideas in the last episode. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think what with the story shows, because we're drawing those parallels between the, the turn of the century last, you know, that last century and then what we're going through now in this century. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're seeing these ideas. I think these ideas trend and then they we drop off on the discussion like after 10 days or whatever, because because yeah. people don't realize that these are recurring themes. These are themes that have happened mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And over and over. And and that's why they just kind of drop off. But I feel like they're, they're yeah. you know, they, they stop and just look and, and we can say, no, this is, I mean, this is stuff we've struggled with for centuries. And, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. talk about your relevancy. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. I, I think what, when I read this story last night, um, because forgive me, you know, I, I don't, <laughs> I'm I'm rather new to some of this stuff, and this story was mm -hmm. new for me. You're I still mean, working through your Star Wars update, 1996. Uh, don't Jeez. talk about Star Wars. <laughs> don't, let's let's <laughs> talk about Edith Nesbitt. It's so much better than Star Wars. Um, no, I, I mean, what struck me as I was reading this story last night was just like, golly, man, do I feel like Nesbitt just like understood her moment right that cultural yeah. moment yeah. oh and, yeah and how how much i still resonate with her work you know for this reason right like i i really enjoyed the story because um i i think it's it's almost like built to withstand a test of time right it's it's yes. it's, it's built on this this kind of like preoccupation that i think is very universally human mm -hmm. especially in um you know this this like mo rapid modernizing age maybe it mm -hmm. won't be as recognizably um resonant you know in in 300 years where we're all on spaceships you know in in like a, a yeah. post scarcity universe i don't know <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but i think right now it it feels really resonant yeah and i mean you take out like 
maybe six or seven references and you have zero idea what time period this is in. It could easily be in modern London. Oh, yeah. You know, the, she doesn't, a lot of these stories are surprisingly, like there are things that date them, but because the focus is on character development, there's not a lot, it's not like, like I'll, I'll give kind of a funny example. Um, as you know, a person who was born in the late eighties, I absolutely love Arrested Development. I think it's such a funny <laughs> show, but you, like if I were to play that f to a Gen Zer, um, <laughs> they would still think it was funny. The people were funny, but so many of the references are built around like the Bush years. Right. And there's just so much stuff that like would be lost on them. Um, and it doesn't make it like not a, a fantastic, hilarious show, but it does mean that it is dated. Right. Um, and, and I think there's, there's that tension between something that's classic and universal and something that's fashionable. I think mm. fashionable things are important and we need to, right. like, if something's fashionable, it's for a reason it's, it's addressing the present moment. I think that's critical, but I think that, um, these, these stories like this that have a more of a universal appeal, they're going to pass on much further than say, um, like I've read Victorian stories that are super dated, you know, and, yeah. and that you're just like, well, like, I just can't get into this because it's all about, you know, like the, um, the silver, uh, crisis of right. the late 1800s, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I don't care about whether, you, whether your economy works on silver or gold, that that's boring, you know, but a story like this could be set in any decade, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely. Well, so, so let's uh, transition gears. Let's talk yeah. about Mr. Yeah. James, um, which was the second story we we looked at. Um, so I'm I got to say, when I'm reading Lost Hearts, the first. So I don't know if you've if you if you've listened to our podcast before or, or anything. Um, we mm -hmm. did a five part. It ended up being five parts, right? It was a five part. five part series on Bram Stoker and Dracula. Where mm -hmm. I feel like we covered a lot of information, but we still just kind just of skimmed the surface, like yeah. scratched the surface. And in that, we get into Bram Stoker's life in like two episodes, and we talk about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and we get really, oh, yeah. really involved yes. with that. So I'm reading M.R. James, especially that it's published in 1895, and I'm reading this old mm -hmm. man. And that's what pops in my head is the Hermetic Order of the totally. Golden Dawn. We gotta totally, be yeah. we gotta be real careful about how we talk about this stuff. For the slay sleeping <laughs> siblings are gonna come after us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, do you want to? Super... <laughs> oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, do you want to give us a little lowdown into this story too, like you yeah. did for the last one? So, um, a little bit of background on Emmer James, like why we've been talking about him, like he's such a big deal, is because in the UK, especially. He's just considered the the absolute master of the ghost story. Oh, His yeah. ghosts are very different from, say, Henry James, an American, mm. um, who's famous for the Turn of the Screw, or yeah. you know Charles Dickens, because his ghosts have this extremely visceral, um, almost zombie-like quality that is very different from the way the ghosts were. Definitely. If you think about Victorian ghost stories, you do kind of tend to think about like a hazy, misty vision. And these are not that way at all. And James so was Lost one of the hearts was, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, James is one of the characters that was in that, that organization. Wasn't he, wasn't he a part of the hermetic order of the golden dawn he, or my, I... he was not, okay. um, but he, he was definitely privy to it. Right. Um, he, he would have been very serious about something like that. And he, he also kind of lampooned it in a story that's also really famous called casting the runes. 
Um, so he okay. would have he would have been one of those people who's like, um, that's not a joke. I wouldn't screw around with that. Um, <laughs> he, he, did, he did. He always said like, when asked like, do you believe in ghosts? He always said, I'm open to evidence. You know, he he wasn't mm -hmm. like a true believer, but he was like, you shouldn't screw around with this stuff because something's working here. So <laughs> that's a, that's, a, the, that's my partner's the, response. <laughs> Anytime we, you know, talk about like a Ouija board or something like that, it's like. Yeah. No, man, don't fuck with that. No. Like, yeah, he, no. he would have a similar thing where he's like, I don't understand it. I'm not saying I'm a true believer, but I'm just out. Nope. So <laughs> the character, the, the villain in this story is definitely, you're right. He's modeled after these folks who were really into a resurgence in um, black magic, which was mm. very fashionable in kind of the, the higher upper echelons of educated British society. You know, they were kind of like, well, we're, we're done with Christianity, um, but we also have a taste for the occult. And spiritualism <laughs> was really um, wildly popular, especially with the middle class. And so this like dark magic was ironically kind of uh, very popular with the upper classes. And so mm -hmm. I'll get into the, the gist here, um, but Lost Hearts was his second story that he wrote. Um, and it, a lot of people, myself included, would say it's probably one of his darkest. It's very dark. Oh, super um, dark. Yeah. So, like all Mr. James stories, this takes place in the past, and there's a kind of a telescopic um, approach to it that you're mm. hearing it from a person who heard it from a person who, um, you know, heard it from a firsthand witness many years ago. And it, this um, was a so, very popular model. Right or, or framing device. He did device that a lot for, in a lot of his stories. I, I don't think, think it's just yes. him. I think yeah. I think it like a, it was like a very popular framing device for a lot of horror writers yeah. um, at Absolutely. the time. Right, like it's always it's it gives a, an air of authenticity. Like, credence. Yeah, yeah, authenticity. Right. Mm -hmm. like, well, even Henry James just, does it at the beginning of A Turn of the Screw. They're all yes. sitting around yes. telling ghost yes. stories, yes. and one's like. I love that you point that out because no one remembers that. Everyone forgets the framing device to turn oh, the screw. I love that. Yeah, like there's this telescope that I heard it from a guy, like, or I got the manuscript from a guy who wrote it and he died. And that's another thing with Mr. James is a lot of times um, these people, it's like, well, they die. There's a creepiness about it. It's like yeah. they're dead now and I have their story, yeah. you know. <laughs> yes. So so this is a, that a is thing creepy. that happens. Um and and you might have the date in front of you. I don't. I think 1895 might be. Yes, yeah. it, it was 1895. Yep. Okay. So the story set in 1811, and um, it, the I don't know if I'd say protagonist. Yeah, protagonist is the right word. Um, the the guy we're following is uh, a 12 year old orphan named Stephen Elliot, yep. who mm -hmm. just lost his parents, and he's been sent off to live with his middle aged bachelor cousin, who's called. Mr. Abney, and Abney <laughs> is this eccentric hermit who is, uh, he's like kind of a sometimes professor of Greek at Cambridge and is really into esoteric Greco-Roman metaphysics. Um, and he has all these, there's all these references. Like you do. But like, it's just, cool. when it comes to James, there's just so many footnotes because he oh talks about, you know, He's into the <laughs> mysteries and the Orphic poems and the worship of Mithras and yeah. the Neoplatonists and all this stuff that's like, what are you There's talking about? There's so much basically, symbology, this is a guy, like, like just yeah. condensed in these stories. <laughs> he, he really lays it on thick. Yeah, so he's he's a guy who's really into Greco-Roman um, dark arts, which is interesting because we're not talking about pagan um, arts in the sense of, you know, like we're not talking about Wiccan, we're talking about 
Greco-Roman dark arts. It's a different, <laughs> right. it's a different animal. <laughs> so Stephen shows up at his um, his mansion um, in the country, and his cousin. He's a real creepy guy. He's an older guy <laughs> who's very weird and very eccentric, but comes off like very warm. He just asks lots of weird questions. Like he's really curious about his birthday and is like <laughs> creepily, yeah. creepily pleased to find out that he is 12 years old. He's like, oh, that's great. That's perfect. That'll be, that'll be perfect it's for me. It's the right like, age. Okay. I, I yes, yeah. I'll let you guys know, I aspire to be that uncle to my nephews and nieces. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, like, honestly, this story reads a lot. It starts out a lot like a Charles Dickens novel. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, and, and he could be kind of a, of like not a villain but kind of just a a tedious person who you know grinds down on this poor orphan boy you know but he's not he's a full-out villain he's a bad guy um <laughs> you know he he ushers him his him in and he's done with him then he he goes off and introduces right. him to the housekeeper and the butler um and, they... and the housekeeper's name is mrs bunch and she helps him get moved in and stephen's this really interesting kid he's very philosophical um, and he has all these weird questions. He asks his own weird, weird yeah. questions, kind of like Abney does. But he wants to know, you know, is Mr. Abney a good man, and will he go to heaven one day? <laughs> yes. And um, and kind of again, Mr. James is really famous for his humor, um, especially after you've read the story. Some of these these interactions are kind of darkly humorous. Yeah. But she's like, oh, he's he's such a good man, and of course he'll go to heaven. You know, she tells him about how well, you know. It, it was only recently <laughs> that um, he he took in this poor Romani girl. <laughs> um, you know, they girl. call her a gypsy, but yeah. um, they would say a Romani. This poor um, orphaned Romani girl who, uh, you know, didn't have any kith or kin, took her in. Um, but it, it's so interesting. <laughs> she, like... she looked us she lived with us for three weeks and then she vanished yeah, you know? she's just like, and, i wonder what happened to that little girl so yeah and then oh, mrs man. bunch assumes you know she blames it on the um, romani people she says right. well she must have been which is so funny um she must have been stolen by gypsies which is that was a trope <laughs> yeah, in the yeah, day yeah, 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 of yeah. like if a child disappeared well maybe they were kidnapped by it's gypsies a, and it's like it's, it's she the... is a romani like, yeah. like, like i mean obviously it's they like might the... come for their own person but her implication is like yeah. well those people they just they kidnap children yeah. so they must have kidnapped it's the 19th but, century uh, version of the dingo ate your baby <laughs> yes yeah the dingo ate my baby yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. so um Another and then the then she points out, well, this is actually the, um, that was the first time he did something like this. Actually, shortly after that, there was an Italian boy named, um, Gio his name's Giovanni, but she calls him Giovanni. Because uh, James, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. James likes to write in the uh, vernacular. So yeah. he, you know, he um, throws in this kind of country English accent that she has. Giovanni, um, who came to their door one winter day. Um, and he was playing as Herbie Gertie, which you can look that up on YouTube if you <laughs> don't know what that is. But it's a, it's yeah. kind of a cool it's instrument like a that makes a, it's very, a a it's kind of a creepy, yeah, it's kind of a creepy bagpipey yeah. sound. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a stringed instrument, and he's he was playing it asking for you know some alms, and and Abney was like, oh no, just live with us. You just live with us now, and he also <laughs> do it. Pretty goody. It's, it's funny because he, he also sticks around for a little bit, 
Um, <laughs> and, and then, then he also leaves. just disappears. He yeah. vanishes too. Without his hurdy-gurdy. Damn like, gypsies. Yeah, leaving, leaving this this instrument, with, which was not just like a, a very cherished cultural right. token, yeah. but it's also his source of income. <laughs> right, yeah. But, oh, but basically, yeah, Abney's great. He's awesome. He takes an orphan <laughs> and they just happen, happen to disappear. <laughs> he loses more orphans than I've ever seen. Yeah. So, other, so other now than the his, missing orphans, orphans, he's a great guy. <laughs> yeah, so now this, uh, this older cousin is on his third orphan, Stephen. <laughs> he's, um, he's worse than and, Batman. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so Stephen's sitting there, and he's kind of like, well, you know, interesting. I, I'm taking note of that. And he's such an interesting character because throughout the story, yeah. he takes notes of things, and he never reacts really intensely. Right. He just absorbs it, and, and you never know what he's thinking, really. Well, yeah. shortly after that, um, one of the creepiest scenes in all of MR James, I just oh, love yeah. it's so cinematic and so creepy. Um, a few nights after that, he has a dream that he's walking down the corridor in in the uh, the upper stories where his bedroom is, and he's walking down the corridor to this um, this bathroom that has a leaded pane. Um, a leaded glass pane so you can't mm -hmm. see him but you can see light and he can tell there's there's some kind of a light in it and he opens the door and the window has been pulled back and there's moonlight pouring into the bathtub mm -hmm. and in the bathtub he sees a, a shriveled almost mummified zombie-like little girl who's holding her hands over her chest yeah. and like looks up at him pathetically and then in a snapshot like he, he suddenly wakes up and the creepy oh it's so creepy <laughs> he wakes up and he's standing in front of the bathroom yeah you know the dream is over but he's standing in front of the bathroom door there's no light coming in but you know he checks it out and and thankfully the bathtub is empty um and so he's like well that was kind of weird <laughs> <laughs> you know oh just moving on and that's part of steven's character is that like he's either extremely intelligent or he's very stupid um, and I think James, knowing his James's personality, I think he wants to leave that up to our interpretation because he had kind of a, a uh, his relationship with children um, was always kind of funny. Not in a, uh, there wasn't any like any hanky panky about. It. He wasn't like a a person that you wouldn't want to be teaching your right. child. But he always had kind of a sense of um, loving teaching kids, but also thinking um, you know having kind of like I want to kick him in you know, the seat of the pants to move, to scoot him along <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. of an approach to children. Yeah. So, um, and, and a lot of these stories were very popular with children at the time, but moving on. So um, another night he wakes up and his nightshirt's been t like weirdly torn. Yeah. Um, there's some parallel slits over the left side of his chest, like uh, an animal had scratched him with its claws, but his flesh isn't um, scratched. It's just the shirt. Um, and he tells Mrs. Bunch about that um and and as he goes up to talk to her he overhears her talking to the butler and the butler is nervous because he's heard voices talking in the wine cellar mm -hmm. and says he, he's not going to do that anymore he's not going to go to the wine cellar um but bunch is like <laughs> oh you're just drunk because you've been sampling the wine um, <laughs> but so we have these two like really creepy moments that suggest something is cooking in here and i think we can kind of tell where this is going yeah. um which is classic the... of james he wants to drop hints but but he holds off for a big reveal oh yeah so on the the story meets its apex on march 4th of the following year uh or march 24th of the following year which is a significant date um 
Yeah. And he uh, he tells Steve, Abney tells Stephen, you know, hey, little cousin, um, I would love to meet you at 11 p.m. in my study because I have something very important to show you. <laughs> but don't tell Mrs. Bunch and don't tell the butler. You know, so so you know already this is sounding not great. You know, it's like why why do you have to wait until then? Why can't I tell them um, what's going on? But uh, Stephen respects his request. And, uh, you know, an hour before the appointment, he kind of gets ready and he stands out at the window the, uh, from his bedroom that's looking out over the, the front yard. And the yard is just completely awash with mm. moonlight and he can kind of he can see everything yeah. and he hears he feels like he's hearing some strange cries mm -hmm. um, and, and, and wails and moans um, floating over the air but they seem to be getting like closer and closer but then all of a sudden this the sounds stop and he looks he's about to go back to bed but he looks us down or looks down at the front yard and he sees a boy and a girl standing mm. in the front yard looking back at him no nope. um and the, the girl <laughs> is um she resembles the figure he saw in the bathtub yeah. she's got she's her hands over her sad. heart right yeah yeah she's yeah. very sad and pathetic and i'm um, holding and the the, the kid, I was gonna say the kid too, is has the same like like marks right on the the same yeah. side where he was he was where Stephen Stephen's garment was rent right. Um, yeah, the kid has like so, these these dark black marks on his body. <laughs> yeah, so the, like the the girl is is hiding her heart the the side right. of her chest where her heart is. So we assume there's something that she's covering up and she's very sad the boy is ferocious you know like right. where she's pathetic he's ferocious yeah. and he and he's holding his hands up in and one of those classic james lines you can he says you can the something like the nails were terribly long and the moon shone through them yeah. you know and you can you can just picture them the these nails glowing in the moonlight because the moon's behind them and he he's exposing his chest and there's a black rent yes where like the uh the chest cavity has been torn open and the heart has been removed i'm looking and at so, your picture now and you capture all of that really well in that picture mm, it's it's really great yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's such a cinematic creepy moment it's visceral and so sure. um you you would think hey um that's not great like something's going on here <laughs> um but steven he sticks with his appointment he goes down um, to abney's study at 11 o'clock but the door's jammed and he can hear people talking inside and then all of a sudden he hears abney scream the strangled cry um and you know when the um when the servants get there and, and the door's been open uh steven pops in and sees abney on his chair with uh, um there's a, a long knife on the side table mm -hmm. and a large glass of wine and some kind of a, a manuscript where abney has spelled out his religious beliefs and his plans for steven yeah. um but abney's sitting there with his his chest has been torn open presumably by the boy's long fingernails and his heart is still there um so it's one of the not to jump into the analysis but it's really interesting because abney's been harvesting these hearts um but when the children claim revenge on them their approach is to expose his heart so they're, mm. they don't want to take it they want people to, this is his heart this yeah. is you know this man is evil yeah but essentially what happens um at the end is 
Stephen, you know, takes these papers and it takes him a while to understand them because he's so young. But in the in the conclusion, um, Stephen explains to the narrator who's now telling this to us <laughs> that um, in this manuscript, Abney spelled out like his study of the Greco-Roman mystery religions and how mm. um, essentially he found this ritual where you could, um, in his words, gain a complete ascendancy over those yeah. orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe so it's a fancy way of saying um you can like become a superhero like, <laughs> right. you can, I can get powers. yeah you get all these yeah. powers yeah um you just and in the papers murder three he children. talks about <laughs> yeah in, in the papers he talks about how at this date um for the last two years which is it's close to um the spring solstice um or the spring equinox right it's close to that point um the previous year he had a, a an italian boy giovanni paoli who he you know killed and harvested his heart yep. the year before that it was um phoebe stanley was the name of the girl who um was a you know a quote-unquote gypsy and he oh. harvested her heart and he just needs a third victim um, and he writes in his notes, they're like, well, this must be my cousin, um, and his <laughs> yeah. March 24th. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he says like in his notes, you know, um, he suffered some annoyance from ghosts, but he says, you know, essentially a smart, intelligent, uh, well-trained man shouldn't be bothered by that. It's not a big deal. They can't hurt you, but obviously right. they can. Right. Um, and yeah. so that's the end of the story. You know, essentially he, in his, his notes, he's admitted, I've been murdering children, hoping that <laughs> I can gain eternal life and, you know, uh, an ability to like become invisible and fly and all this goofy right. stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's such a, and it ends without us really knowing what happens to Steven other than like he apparently survived long enough to pass right, the right. story on to the narrator. Yeah. But it's another one of these stories where surprisingly the focus is not on, you know, like some great, you know, African hunter who, um, uh, in the, in the sense of like a, a colonialist mm -hmm. who's, who's going to like flush out the demons of, you know, the dark continent or anything like that. It's mm. told from the perspective of a foreigner, a, um, a, uh, a girl you know a, a, a young girl who has been orphaned and a little boy who's been orphaned so mm. these are all three um characters all the victims are people who are extremely marginalized in the society orphans yes. all three you know a gypsy and an italian immigrant and yes. these are the characters that abney who represents you know the uh the upper echelons of cambridge society has been you know, victimizing. So it's interesting. Yes. The you know, it's not a story that's going to, you know, really aggrandize the uh, the imperial um, ethos. It's something that's kind of pointing out the dark underbelly of it. Yeah. Well, you make a you make a really great point. And I want to jump on this real quick um, because, like I said, I like to talk about craft. And you make this really great point that we don't know if Stephen is stupid or if he's really intelligent. And yeah. like we also don't know necessarily what's going on in the head of the, the the guy in the first story either i mean we he kind of yeah, reacts absolutely. and responds but what's fa fascinating about both of these stories that they're in that they're that perspective that pov is like that close third person that free and direct style yes. because we it's still the he said she said but we're following one character really closely but what they mm -hmm. do brilliantly in this is that they refuse to tell us 
if this character because i mean like a lot of first like first year writers and, and programs and stuff their inclination would be in writing a story like this would be like oh i'm going to tell you if he's stupid or or intelligent yeah and it's like Absolutely. no we we follow him and we see the world through his eyes but we don't have to hear his reasoning because that's well, just not how people think I think it's an interesting yeah. point too i when i read the story you know i thought as this kid was you know asking these questions of um of his uncle you know i, I felt like a part of it was like it, the kid's trying to figure out where he stands yeah right he's trying to figure mm -hmm. out who this uncle is and, and, and like you know is am i gonna have a good time here am i gonna have a bad time here yeah you know like it and so to that end, I, I feel like it spoke to me of a real intelligence, right? Yeah. Because this yes. this kid is cognizant of the, the the space that he's in and what very little agency he has. Um, and mm. so he's trying to suss out like and, and kind of like order himself in in these mm -hmm. affairs where he's trying to figure out where do I fit in? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the pecking order of this house, like like what kind of a, a life of my going to be living here and and really mm -hmm. like what you know what's what's the outcome here what's going to happen with me? yeah well and we see his reasoning too because like i think you pointed out michael in one of your annotations um that uh the the kid i feel like picks up because the uncle doesn't know if it's like tea time or if it's dinner time like when the kid first mm -hmm. arrives he's like i don't know what yeah. you know what's proper for you to eat right now and i feel like <laughs> like steven kind of picks up on that like hey you know shouldn't he yeah. know what i need to be well and yeah. that's, that's an interesting point too to the uncle because the uncle's i mean the uncle's a jackass right like he, yes. he he has no real concept of of what this kid needs you know he's like oh great uh, steven i'm so glad you're here uh here's my maid she'll take yeah, care she'll of figure it out you know <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah he he, he just kind of like passes him off and he i kind of reminds me of count olaf in the uh, series of unfortunate events yes yeah <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, very similar <laughs> i think to the you know the point about craft too what what we get about this character i think is is all in the subtext of how the story is structured. Yeah. Right. We know that yeah. there, there's something freaking off about this uncle almost from mm -hmm. the get go, from the way that he interacts with Steven. And as Steven points these questions to Mrs. Bunch and says stuff like, is he a good person? You think he's going to go to heaven? Like immediately my response as a reader is like, nope. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like you like, don't have to ask that. Yeah, if he <laughs> if he is a good person. Yeah, we're given um, an opportunity, I think, to learn more about who this guy is and what he's doing. Um, just you know, contextually through the story itself, yeah. I think this is a masterclass of that that old adage of like, show don't tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, and and I think Mr. James does a lot of sh of showing instead of telling. Yeah. There's um, sure does. there's a point where like the kid Stephen is is pointing out. Um, I think it's Stephen who points it out. He says like there are some weird scratches on the on the wall oh, yes. over here. Yep. Yes, yep. you know, and and Mrs. Bunch is like, well, that's weird. Like they're not at a level with like an animal or something. She's like, yeah. oh, I should probably maybe check out what's going on. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah, I mean, I think that Steven's incredibly intelligent, but it is interesting how, um, I, in talking to other people who've read the story, um, sometimes 
you might get glib responses. I, I've even taught this story um, for a, a class, and you get some glib responses about like, well, why did he stay? Which is a great opportunity to talk about like, oh what is gosh. he going to do? Can we what talk choice about... does he have? Yeah, and that's uh, the the whole point of this, or not the point, because there's a lot of points being made. But one of the great points of the story is. Like when you live in a society where you are marginalized, I mean, it doesn't matter that he's a white male. He's a white male orphan who's underage. Right, right. Who who doesn't have like, I mean, he has a benefactor, but he doesn't have an independent source of income. Right. So he's still on the same level as you know a foreign um, child and a child who um, is a I, I suppose we could could say a cultural minority. You know, a member of the Romani people. Um, these are all three children who have no say in the world and are, are kind of tossed about by the whims of the adults who can choose to protect them yeah. um, or to, you know, to do stuff with them that, I mean, again, just like with the, the previous story, there's a lot of sexual subtext here um, mm. that's very uncomfortable to think about, you know, because mm. it's extremely violative the way the Abney, you know, uses these children. Um, oh, yeah. and, and there's definitely a lot here that um, that is just really sad to think about, like what this could really be talking about. Yeah. Um, but you just think this is a man who was able to do this because of his station in life and because people viewed him as a source of authority. Yeah. You know, so once again, um, one of the things I will always um, champion about the Victorian ghost story is that not all stories are good. But just because a story is old doesn't mean that it's somehow, you know, yeah. um, going to be something that's that's very deplorable, yeah. um, you know, or, or racist or sexist. Like this is a yeah. story which, in spite of the, the author who is, you know, coming from uh, Cambridge and a place of authority and a place of, um, you know, he, he's part of that um, imperial project. He's still sitting down and writing a story that points out the costs that that kind mm. of a society can have on mm -hmm. people who aren't part of that project yeah um and it's it's a deeply sad story but also unforgettable you can't forget some of those scenes oh, they're yeah. so cinematic well and i i think again coming to the relevancy of of this story you know and and the multiple readings we can perform for it you know on the one hand there is the 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 reading about agency again right yeah. you know you talk mm -hmm. about the kids who are like well why didn't he just leave like what yeah. what choice do you what have choice? when you're yeah. 12 years old you know <laughs> uh, like i'm i'm 35 and and people you know when i see people talking about um issues of of economic inequality or something like that you know the trouble that a lot of millennials are having with like finding mm -hmm. well-paying jobs or good-paying jobs or jobs with the kind of benefits that can sustain you um you know there's this this conversation like well why don't you just leave your company like it's yeah. fucking easy to just leave well, the company you know yeah what's the, what's your option you know right yeah. hopefully and, hopefully you maybe find something better but you don't that's not a guarantee right. and i have more privilege than most right i have several advanced degrees um i have a a, a lot more mobility probably than than other mm -hmm. people and it's still a daunting task to try to figure out yeah. you know where would i go what would happen if if i had less education you know i had less of that that privilege um so there there's a reading of of privilege and agency in this story that i think is really important because again to your mm -hmm. point you know we, we are talking about marginalized kids 
Um, yeah. Which I think, you know, just kind of stacks more and more and more of that, like, inability to be, you know, socially or economically um, mobile, right? Yeah. I think, too, there's also a reading of um, the kind of, like, vampirism of the rich, mm. right? The vampirism mm, yes. of... Um, you know the these people of of power right mm -hmm. it's significant that these are marginalized groups right we have a poor yeah. italian kid we have a romani girl which i think if if you want to talk about a marginalized community um mm -hmm. in england what better yes. group to talk about than than a romani person i think if we had translated this from um you know, British society to American society, that little girl would be black or that little girl yeah. would be native American. Native, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. those would be the, the marginalized groups that, um, that these characters would represent, you know, in, in America, the American landscape. Mm -hmm. So we have this rich white dude who's literally, you know, just taking these people in because it's convenient for him yeah. for, for his, you know, his like machinations for power. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think read in a modern context, even, um, I mean, how different is it that this guy, you know, just takes these kids in to cut out their hearts so he can learn mm -hmm. black magic or whatever, you know, like, I don't know, maybe it's just me in this, this, unique cultural moment it's like you know now we have billionaires who are just like buying social media pr platforms you yeah know, how is that any different right it's like wait a minute just... trevor to whom are you referring um <laughs> well it's certainly not uh not to uh, not a musky guy or anything yeah i'm sure he smells fine <laughs> yeah um you know i i think that there's um I don't think that it's all that different, right? Like it's we're just kind of translating the ideas. The allegory here, I think, is still you know this preoccupation of like these people with means, these people with power, um, you know, continue to consume yeah. these other marginalized groups in order mm -hmm. to to consolidate their own power. They're not interested mm -hmm. in charity. They're not interested in doing the right thing. They're only interested in the things that allow them to consolidate more of their power yep. for themselves. And I yeah. think in a way it's kind of quaint to be like, well, here's this really rich dude who's just into black magic. Like how, <laughs> how nice yeah. would it be if, if our billionaires mm -hmm. today were just like, man, I'm really into crystals, you know, like yeah. instead of fucking, <laughs> fucking, I'm going to take over the world through the information that you get from social media, you know? I now yeah. picture, I now picture like Mark Zuckerberg walking up of like a crystal being like, you can't tip me mm -hmm. over. You can't tip me over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, I mean, the the, ca the causes and stuff might have changed, but it does speak topically to, like, the, the billionaires and and the things they, yeah. you know. I mean, I, whenever I, I see a dude like this who, who definitely would have been in the, the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that, that hermetic order, um, again, uh, like, not to speak too ill of them because of the Slay siblings, but, <laughs> um, you know, like... I, I, these are the movers and shakers, right? Like yeah. these yes. are the, the people in the world that, um, you know, had, had real power, had real influence. Mm -hmm. Um, and look at the way that they shaped, I mean, even conversations about culture. I mean, look at the way that they, they created 
stories that have lasted for generations and shaped mm -hmm. public consciousness about things, right? These are not individuals in this hermetic order who, you know, were just like, oh, yeah, this is my... Uh, I don't know. This is my bingo club, you know, like, yeah, yeah. It right. carried over into their personal and professional lives. Right. They, they mean... had real goals and, and were really doing things, shaping public discourse, shaping politics. Um, and I think that to the point that, like you said, I mean, MR James wasn't a part of this, but he knew of it and he was intimate with oh, it. Yes. Yeah. And that was the question I think we raised from our research with like Bram Stoker. It's like there was mm -hmm. there were points that said Bram Stoker was a part of it. And then there was evidence to yeah. show that maybe he wasn't, but he was really intimate. Mm -hmm. Right. Either way, it fully impacted like his life. Yeah. Well, and and, and they I were think in he, that circle. Yeah. yeah. You were you were talking too about what, what was her name? Madam. Madam Z. Madam Blavatsky. Oh, Madam Blavatsky. Yeah, Blavatsky. Who, yeah. Whose yeah. ideas were so were so prominent, right? Were so prevalent that, um, you know, it 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 there's like a, a definite through line between that and and Nazism, right? Yeah. Like the yes. the eugenics, um, and and you know oh, all all yeah. of those ideas that I think cropped up around Nazism. It, yeah. These these people right have a political agency and have a way mm -hmm. of shaping events shaping discourse in a way I, i'm not talking just like weird illuminati shit you know i'm talking like mm -hmm. historical yeah. record they shaped discourse they, they shaped, shaped world history events world history like right? rasputin mm -hmm. with the uh, with the russians and the uh, the czars i mean that was right. that was all and i think what what mr james kind of points out in this story is how predatory these people are yes. or, yeah. or at least can be right yeah yeah and it's an interesting thing that runs through his work because again he he was um a member of that circle of you know cambridge elites mm -hmm. but his stories are consistently very like surprisingly populist you know they are yeah. uh, they're very um, s um skeptical and suspicious of powerful individuals who use their um who use their individual wealth to cancel out collective um, traditions. So, you know, a lot of times there'll be a story about like a rich guy who decides to like um, demolish a cathedral to put up something that's more fashionable and he accidentally <laughs> releases a vampire, you know, that was <laughs> right, hidden right. under the crypts. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that's why that community, which, you know, usually it's this, this, tr um, this alliance between uh, working class people, tradesmen, and clerics, or you know the uh, the lawyers, the middle class, college educated people in that community, where they're they're kind of in an alliance of like, oh, you know, we have varying degrees of understanding about what's going on here, but don't screw with the crypt, you know. <laughs> and then right. some rich Oxford educated um, architect comes in and is like, ah, we're gonna we're gonna throw that all away. It's it's <laughs> pointless. And then a plague settles on the whole town. I'm, this whole thing is a reference to a story called an episode of Cathedral History. But there's a lot of other <laughs> stories that he writes that are like it, where the recurring theme is, you know, just because you, and, and it makes so much sense. And in terms of the <laughs> reference that you just made about, you know, uh, Twitter, let's put it that way. <laughs> just because you have a whim that like this is how things should be doesn't mean you should steamroll over the collective good, mm -hmm. you know, because you can afford to and we right. Yeah. To do that because we have collective traditions and collective um collective needs and securities that shouldn't be at the whim of the person who just happens to have the most 
financial or cultural power. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So I give, I give big kudos to MR James, you know, as much as he was a part of that community um, of, of, you know, college educated elites, his stories very consistently do kind of, you know, point to some of the uncomfortable truths that people in that society would have been a little bit shy to talk about um and i think part of it was because he was a little bit of uh, an eccentric and renegade and was also very lazy um and, and he didn't have the ambition that a lot of those guys had he's like i just want to read you know i want to read like ancient medieval manuscripts and be left alone and he was always very annoyed with these these ambitious up-and-comers um you know who who like to say like well we're going to throw all this crap out and we're going to make it up to date and modern and he's like but at what cost like you're doing that because it makes you look good or makes progresses mm. your career. But think about all the hundreds and thousands of millions of people you're disadvantaging by steamrolling stuff in the name of your quote unquote progress. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why we need to read these Victorian stories. I feel like, yeah. I mean, there's that because there is that parallel between their society and ours and, and yeah. just not just, I mean, we can, we can draw that parallel, I think to most time periods but what's mm -hmm. very to particular about these time periods is that like you like you said earlier their world or trevor maybe their world was rapidly mm -hmm. changing and mm -hmm. our yeah. world is rapidly changing yeah. just and it's yeah. in a different way but we are yeah. we are experiencing that same kind of paradigm shift in culture mm -hmm. that they did and that's what especially makes their stories so relevant today yeah I, I mean, yeah absolutely if there is a thesis statement for this episode right as, <laughs> as we kind of come to a close i, I think the thesis mm -hmm. statement really is like these old stories can still reveal so much to us about our society today and our mm -hmm. place in society today because mm -hmm. I think that the human concerns we have have not changed in a post-industrial world, right? Yeah. I think that instead, as long as these same systems that were being built, you know, uh, a century and a half ago or whatever, um, you know, these same systems have not changed all that much. And I think that human lives within these systems have not changed all that much. Yep. So that yeah. even though we may have perhaps different material circumstances or, mm. or different cultural circumstances right now, you know, I, th I think that our human concerns and the interaction of human to human, right, um, continues to, to follow along a parallel path, a mirrored path, mm -hmm. right? And I think that these yeah. stories can help us understand and contextualize our moment and perhaps push us, you know, closer toward taking action that maybe mm -hmm. leads to a more equitable, less horrific future. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well put. Here's here's hoping in a hundred years too that there is a podcast or whatever is popular at that time <laughs> talking about us and all of us and that's, 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 we nailed it, it. <laughs> <laughs> man michael i just uh man i want to say thank you so much for giving us your time um this has been really awesome talking to you and absolutely and, likewise 
and 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 just really kind of getting that out there. I love these episodes. We um, I think what's mm-hmm. great about them is that we're idiots like ninety nine percent of the time, <laughs> and then um, someone comes in and and like helps us elevate our discourse entirely. So yeah, that we makes we us don't be sound serious. So silly. Yeah. <laughs> well, really it was awesome. absolutely a pleasure to talk with you guys, and I'll I'll be happy to come back anytime. Absolutely. Are you uh, are you going to be in StokerCon this year? Or? Or do you ever? I won't. I won't. Yeah. But um, definitely, I, I look forward to seeing what comes from that, and you know, con- some of the conversations and, and news and updates that pop out of that. For that, for that. Well, we are going to be there, so we will keep you informed about what's going on, and and we're excited, man. This has been really great talking to you. We really appreciate it. You too. You too. Take care, guys. All right. Awesome. All right, you too. See you. Thank you.